0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized today's event. This is one of over a thousand programs we started uh, with the pandemic, where we bring authors in, we live stream them in. Um, And uh, today we have George Musser, um, the author of Putting Ourselves Back in the Equation. A very interesting book about physics and current Quantum mechanic theories and everything but but where consciousness fits into this whole picture and how uh, To some physicists dismay Consciousness has to be part of it and to other other physicists delight consciousness has to be part of it So here you're in the middle of, as, a, as a science writer of, of putting that all together and finding everybody's different points of view And I think you did a great job of showing uh, All kinds of people's points of view on what's going on and it also shows that there's not a consensus yet of, on this topic so um, why don't we start uh, before we get started if you're watching the live stream and you would like to ask a question directly of George Just put it in the chat room and uh, and we'll we'll look at it a little bit later in the program So one thing I found interesting that you mentioned in the book was that, that the Emperor's New Mind by Roger Penrose the, the British physicist um, Was one of the things that really got you going It happened to be a book that I read when it first came out a long time ago, too uh, And and I found fascinating as well. So why don't you tell a little bit about how that that pulled you in? Yeah.
0: First of all, I'm delighted to be here and in a conversation with you. To me, that's the great intellectual benefit of of writing the book is that I can finally just close the circle. I can hear from people and the questions they have. So yeah, Emperor's New Mind, I, I actually first went to a series of lectures that Roger Penrose gave uh, when I was in grad school. This was at Cornell, and it was a a named one of these named lecture series. I can't remember offhand. And three lectures, three days. Really fascinating. Of course, I had to not do my homework, and you know, it was a sacrifice <laughs> to, be able to go to these events, especially as a first-year grad student. But it was just invigorating to do that. And then I, right after the, maybe the third lecture that weekend, I went down to a bookstore and bought his book and it's somewhere up on my shelf up here still to this day with my scribbled notes from that time. And it's just, first of all, just, just a remarkable intellectual achievement as really all of Penrose's work is. He's pulled together physics, philosophy, speculations about the nature of the mind. And within physics, he's pulled together gravity, black holes, inflationary cosmology, quantum physics. And, That alone, that kind of the synthesis of multiple fields is just so powerful because I think that's a lot of the truth that we seek in the sciences and scholarship more broadly comes from that kind of unification of different areas. The thing that the book is most noted for is really its commentary on consciousness and the possible relationship to physics. And there's a couple arguments he gives there. One is that consciousness, and it's an elaborate argument involving kind of Goodell's ideas and Turing's ideas, but essentially that consciousness cannot be explained by our, our usual laws of physics. Those usual laws are essentially mechanistic. Mm -hmm. And he argues that mechanistic processes cannot explain. Well, he first creativity and intuition, but by extension, our conscious experience. Second, the other thing is really remembered for is a possible connection to quantum collapse, collapse of the wave function. So really one of the biggest questions and uh, the open questions of physics today, it's been for a century, in fact, what it goes on in the process of measurement. We can get into that later. Mm-hmm. But Penrose suggests that whatever it is, and he's got ideas, is, is connected to our consciousness and in fact could account for our conscious experience. So consciousness, you can see how those two parts go together, consciousness seeming to lack an explanation in our current framework of of science. And here's a possible way to extend the framework, namely to include, for him, gravitational effects involved in the collapse of the wave function. Anyway, these are heady speculations. May well be wrong. He's the first to admit in the book, and then in discussions I've had with him, he could be wrong. But really empowering just to see that kind of creativity and pulling together different areas. Uh, And I think that's really what science needs to get at some of these deep mysteries.
1: Now let's talk about the goal. You you mentioned the goal right away uh, in your book, but the goal of all of these disciplines is that we're all individuals and, and uh, we have this, what we think is a shared experience and that most people agree must be a shared experience. There must be something objective about what we're doing. There are a few people who don't th- think that there is. But the majority, and that's the goal, how can we discuss with each other, um, especially outside of our own disciplines, the, the facts that make us feel that we are sharing an objective reality and how can we get to understand it better? I mean, right now there's a, a, a sort of fad That there are no facts (laughs) and I don't mean here in politics and everything Um, but but we're gonna pretend that that doesn't exist and that we really are uh, in this scientific endeavor trying to get to this shared reality and people come at it from all different disciplines Um, and they should all line up if we're if we're close Mm -hmm. right they should line up and we know that that relativity theory and quantum mechanics don't quite line up but they're they're close you know that kind of thing so with that goal in mind, um, the idea of consciousness is a little bit, but. Yeah. So you've touched on a lot of, in that one question that you've got so much <laughs> packed in.
0: It wasn't a short uh, one. <laughs> so there's an alignment uh, or a consilience among different disciplines of science and uh, intellectual life, or rational thought broadly conceived. Mm-hmm. And then there's the harmony we expect among our individual experiences due to they're all being rooted in an objective reality. So I think the assumption that I came into the book with, you know, really coming from the a physical science background, although I'm of course not only that, I have multiple interests, but mostly coming from the idea of of physical science, and that probably most scientists would come to it, is that we have laws of, of nature, provisional laws, and they're always being developed. And those laws can be applied to the brain in some way, and yield an understanding of our experience. So that would be kind of a scientific project of understanding the mind mm-hmm. from a, a the, the kind of the default way of, of doing that. So that takes the objective as kind of starts from the objective and attempts to recover the subjective. Mm-hmm. Now, the I'm, I'm broadly on board with that program, by the way, but let me just point out an obvious issue with it, which is that epistemically, we start with the subjective and recover the objective. So we're all trapped in our own heads. We're all coming and not in a pejorative way, but we're all coming and looking at the world from inside our own experience and attempting to reconstruct what could be accounting for that experience. And then we infer that there's an objective world out there. And you can go through arguments as has been done like since Descartes onwards Mm -hmm. that that should be possible. And then you and I can go through this kind of process and we can talk to one another or any two people, any two intelligent agents can talk to each other and say, well, I see something. Hey, I see something too. And then there's a intersubjective agreement of that. And we try to build all of science on those kinds of, of agreements. And I think that's the process that is being interrogated now mm-hmm. and it seems like that should be the way to go that we can eventually recover an objective reality from this and those two sides of the the world the objective and the subjective really should be equated in a sense they shouldn't be sides of the world they should be different ways of looking at the same world but that's difficult to do and it's Issues in epistemology that have really been bracketed by the physical sciences ever since physical science became a thing um, under Descartes and, and Galileo and really in that period. although of course, it has precursors mm-hmm. uh, going back to Democritus and so forth so the here, here's some of the issue, here's an example of the issues that come up. We have theories of the objective, and how do we test them? How do we know? Well, we need to relate them back to experiments. So this is empiric- the empirical process. Mm-hmm. And the experiments are talking about experience. They're talking about our experience. So our experience and the way it's formed and the biases it can introduce, for example, or the filters we have, both because of we're finite creatures, we have certain senses, we have certain habits of thought, those filters affect how the physical theory is manifest in our experience. And you can try to, and it has been productively punted on, bracketed for, for centuries that, yeah, you know, we don't really have to delve too much in our experience in order to make the connection from theory to experiment. But I think in some cases, you really do need to put that experience in. So this is the human element that I think has to come into our scientific theorizing. Mm-hmm. So it comes up in cosmology, for example. And there's, there's a long argument here one can give but essentially theory, certain theories in fact the leading theories of cosmology suggest that the universe we see is unrepresentative of the full totality of the cosmos that we're seeing a, a fraction of mm-hmm. the universe essentially why do we see the fraction we do our own existence seems to be connected to that the, we're seeing for instance just at the most basic level a part of the universe that is habitable Because we could not, by definition, see a part of the universe that's uninhabitable. Mm. So we see universe that's, of course, it's quite a violent and and in some ways hostile place, but in relative terms, fairly habitable. Why do we see it that way? Well, we kind of have to. So the prediction of cosmology has to be, there has to be a a filter added to the prediction to connect that theory of cosmology with the experimental
1: Mm.
0: uh, findings that we have. So this is a long winded way of saying that epistemology has to come into scientific practice, and this has been recognized. But I think it's it's becoming more and more an issue. And physicists have, by and large, historically not looked to the fields that are actually experts in that issue: philosophy, neuroscience, which is fairly you new know, as a discipline, but um, philosophy of mind before that, and. And, and other disciplines leading up to what's known as modern neuroscience, physicists really need to, to knock on their doors mm-hmm. and say, Hey, I need some help here. I need some help connecting my theory of cosmology in this case of cosmology to my empirical measurements. And I need your help in plugging in the human and or other agent conducting the experiments.
1: So let's, um- Do something about what the popular image is versus uh, the scientists uh, and we're talking I'll talk about the Big Bang for a second so the Big Bang we kind of almost everybody agrees almost all the evidence shows that there was a huge explosion somewhere between you know there's a little argument about it but it's getting closer and closer to to 13.8 billion or whatever it is you know so it's it's a certain amount of time and it's a long period of time but we we make the assumption that it was in a vacuum or that there was nothing there before the explosion. So we don't really know that, but that's the assumption. So in, in, a, in a vacuum, an explosion would be relatively spherical, right? Everything would go off spherically. And we know what we're seeing is a small light cone at, that's part of that Big Bang. So when people say the visible universe, the scientists know that's just a small light cone of, of a huge, uh, much, much huger thing. But most people think, oh, what we see is what there is. And you, you, you need it would be extremely odd according to what we know about physics for the only part of the Big Bang That happened was the, what we can see the, this this tiny light cone out of a sphere um, There was one very interesting little piece of information in your book uh, that said that microwave uh, Detectors have have detected hydrogen gas 46 billion light years. That's the furthest edge So you want to explain that where's 46 billion light years come to do with when we have a 13.8 and then there was nothing
0: yeah so well, there's a couple of things going on so that that's actually just a, a kind of a numerical factor that comes out of the expansion of space right. so we've got the thirteen i just point out thirteen point eight is a current estimate billion light years um, light we we see events out to things that have happened thirteen point eight billion years ago
1: mm-hmm.
0: and what happened or may not or may have happened before then we will put off on this side mm-hmm. for the for the time being and in the in those thirteen point eight it's actually a little bit less than 3.8 billion years. Space has expanded a factor of three. There's there's actually, you can look it up in tables. There's actually online calculators that will do it for you. Mm-hmm. So you kind of get the light travel time plus the space dilation, space mm-hmm. dilation effect. Result is that objects over that 13.8 billion years are now 46 billion light years uh-huh. apart from one another. I see. Uh, so that. So it, uh, it, is, it is a source of confusion, and, and every time I wrote an article for Scientific American magazine on this, I'd have to put a little parenthesis in. It's not thirteen point eight billion light years; it's thirteen point eight times a, a factor representing the
1: expansion of space light years. Right. Okay. Great. So, so the hydrogen gas that's being noticed at forty six billion light years away is the hi- hydrogen gas right at the beginning of the Big Bang. That's right. So. Wow. Yeah, the, it's not I, someplace else or some other location. It's oh yeah, yes. Yeah. Well, it, it's actually was here, literally here. Right.
0: Thirteen eight point eight or thirteen point eight minus a few hundred thousand, like uh, right. uh, a few hundred thousand years ago, in every place that uh, well, around it's the background ra- radiation. Exact. It's a background yeah. radiation, but what is the background radiation? This often gets kind of put under the rug a little bit here. Right. Background radiation is showing us the distribution of hydrogen gas at that moment. Mm. Now the, or I should say the plasma that was congealing at that moment into hydrogen gas. Mm -hmm. um, And and when it did, light no longer ricocheted around like a pinball on a pinball machine and was able to start, in other words, it wasn't bouncing among all the the individual charged particles. It was able to start streaming more or less... Uh, straight and it's been traveling more or less, obviously it depends a little bit and there's lensing effects, but more or less in a straight line for 13.8 billion years. So when the light hits you you in a telescope, for example, or in one of these instruments, you're seeing it as it has gone for 13.8 billion years. And it's therefore revealing the distribution of that gas.
1: Another another element of the popular versus the scientific. So uh, people often say we're looking into the past. When we when we look back, um, they could say the same thing if you saw uh, rocks in the in the Sierra Mountains and say you know you're looking into the past. What you what you really are doing you're seeing something in the present, but you have scientific knowledge that can help you extrapolate what that means. So we see photons in the present, uh, and and know from our knowledge that it took 13.8 billion years to get here. Right. So yeah, and there's we don't a huge... actually look into the past. Right.
0: Well. Do you, and what it, would it mean to look into the past? I need to think about that a little bit, but mm-hmm. essentially you're right. You're, you're getting artifacts and you're making sense of them, right. be it the rock. And you're inferring from the geologic formations around you that we're actually on a highly dynamic earth. And we're kind of seeing it as if frozen one moment in time. Cause our own temporal window is so short. And some of those rocks may be, be billions of years up to billions of years old. And likewise, with the photons, you're seeing, and in some cases, you're just seeing, and you being the scientist. Mm-hmm. So humanity, the representatives of humanity are seeing photons, light in their telescopes, often just a few photons, actually, just you can count them on your hand, mm-hmm. number of photons, and inferring through a long process what they must represent. And it isn't taken lightly, of course. There's a lot of convergence of different types of observations that are being made here um it's but it is pretty remarkable that you can look out people can look out and and make these inferences about long ago events of things that no longer exist yeah
1: um it's also fascinating you 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 talk about how nature forces us to think about infinity in nature and in in in, in nature you know that that's a, a concept which generally scientists aren't that happy about but there's really no way to get around it um and i, I think it helps to think about an explosion going off in a spherical everything going in a spherical and that even though for 13.8 billion years you, you you've got a the diameter of this sphere is is uh you know 27 point something uh, billion light years for the sphere and yet And yet there's so many photons still with that kind of a diameter that's a a huge number um oh yeah yeah certainly in the decillions at least something like that of photons and so so we are forced as you said in the book to face infinity so why don't you talk you you talk about it in terms of neurons and we'll we'll use this as a as a a segue over to the, the brain and neuroscience and artificial intelligence so Talk about that uh, a little bit.
0: So just to, um, to riff off infinity a little bit.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So we have a interesting, we, say mathematicians, mm-hmm. mathematical physicists have a interesting relationship with infinity. On the one hand, we might say, well, there can't be anything truly infinite in the world. Mm-hmm. Everything's ultimately finite. Right. But on the other hand, there are, uh, ways of understanding the world that seem to require the infinite. So, if I draw a a triangle, the and I apply Pythagoras uh, theorem to that, and I infer that one of the sides is actually an irrational irrational number. So, um, so that's a, in a way requiring a, a type of continuum, a, a type of infinity there. So we, infinity is always something we're using. In in physics and mathematics, all the time it may or may not be expressed literally in in reality, but it's extremely important and we, we couldn't live without it. So, the physicist friend to infinity, you know, we uh, use infinities. The, the textbooks are are filled with them, we're using them all the time, and that's an important part of our analysis. Bring that same sensibility to the understanding of neural networks, as as you point out. So. One very productive way to make sense of a neural network, and let me just back up for a second. Neural networks of the sort of chat GPT and and image recognition networks and Google Translate and everything need to be made sense of, just as our own minds, brains need to be made sense of. These are deeply complicated systems that are extremely important, obviously, in our daily lives becoming more so, and they're very perplexing. The mechanism of them is at a kind of the individual level the neurons kind of the the what's a coder would would put in the code is fully understood the psychology uh that comes from that is is, is the difficulty how do those you know today billions of, of neurons interact and how are they trained over time and the dynamics a occur from that as well uh how does that actually happen and physicists think they can help. And they can help as a just a first crack of it by saying, well, we've got billions of of neurons. Let's say we've got infinitely many neurons. Okay. You might think that's kind of a step back. You took what's a problem. It was already hard enough when we had billions of them. Now you've gone all the way up. How are we possibly going to make sense of that? But infinity is special. It has a certain simplicity, to it that, again, our methods of analysis, and I use the word analysis because of double entendre here, because actually it's a field, a mathematical analysis that does exactly this will allow us to gain traction, in this case, on neural networks. And that was something that started to be done, and I guess in the 90s, when neural networks as a concept went into one of these AI winters, it kind of fell out of favor for a decade or so that work was left. Uh, really in the journals to to gather dust. And then was picked up again just in the past, say, five years that you can think of these networks as infinitely big. And then that actually helps to simplify them. You can actually write an equation to tell you what the network will do. You can predict with certainty or nothing certain. You can predict broadly what it will do. And then you have to ask, well, they're not really infinitely big. So can we sort of back off from that assumption a little bit and say, well, they're very, very, very big. And you can actually do that. You can, the, this is a stage in the in the thinking. You start with the infinite network and then you kind of ease off a little bit and have an extremely very large network. And there's ways to define that precisely mathematically. And then you can correct the initial infinite network solution for the fact it's actually not quite infinite, it's finite. And again, produce a... a, a and elaboration. And this is the kind of process that's now going on. It's fascinating work that's helping to make sense of these neural networks. Because if we can't make sense of them, we can't know what effect they're going to have in our society.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I'd like to kind of throw in an idea here because um, using math and infinity, and, and as you said, it simplifies uh, the way to deal with the problem. And it reminds me of maps, you know, that you, you, you want to map something because if you just have a copy of the Sierra Mountains, that doesn't give you as much information for dealing with the Sierra Mountains as a map does. Now, obviously, the map in this case has even less information in it, um, obviously, than the reality. But when we're trying to describe this shared reality, we do this all the time. We, we're, we're making approximations and everything. And I think it's important, I think, for people who look at this from just a popular point of view and aren't scientists to understand the process that it is mapping, it is leaving out information in order to try to get some kind of principles that we can then work with and then reapply and and, and get closer. But but because I think quantum mechanics is a little bit like that, and a few other things are a little bit like that, instead of being a description of the exact reality, like the Sierra Mountains, it's a map of it, and that's why we can't quite... that, That may be... Maybe not why, but it may be why we can't quite fit it with other things that we're mapping in a slightly different way, like with relativity theory. But but anyway, that that's uh, just an analogy that I thought I'd throw in there because uh, you use infinity, but we know there's not an infinite number of neurons. There's no no such thing as an infinite number, period, because the numbers are always specific. So there's infinite series, but there's not a number is you know a certain number of neurons. Otherwise, they would be coming and going or. Or growing, you know, I mean, the number would have to keep increasing if it's infinite, um, because you could always add one, whatever, you know, whereas you you'd yeah, think yeah. reality is a specific amount. So in any case, um, you're, you, you had some, uh, some graphs uh, that you, that you uh, prepared to help understand these neural networks. And I think it's a fascinating way to go into the AI portion of what you're talking about, because obviously people are very interested in where that's going the last couple of years. Well, let me said, riff off winter and all of a sudden it's, it's, it's really big again.
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. We're back in the heat of summer. But let me riff off what you said about mapping because I think those are really interesting insights. So, and this is relevant to neural networks and to science more broadly. So the map, we make essentially maps, simplified models or representations of the world all the time. This is what intelligence is. This is what it means to understand something this is essential this dimensional reduction this kind of simplification of a very complex reality is the nature of understanding if we didn't simplify we just took a one-for-one representation of what the world was we wouldn't have understood anything we wouldn't have extracted any meaning from it so the process and and this this comes up in designing neural networks, for example, that you want them, the neural networks, to extract the essence of, of reality. You want them to, to get at it, right? Rather than represent it in its entirety. And this is a huge problem with neural networks because if not, I mean, there's a whole black art almost in, in the design of these and training of these systems, but often they are too literal. They'll take it in and they'll spit it right back out. Mm. And you don't want that. You want them to be able to generalize and this is a question of how they generalize is really the the place that physics has been helping the understanding of these neural networks. And before I'm going to show you something about that in a second, but I wanted to touch on one other thing, and that is, I don't think quantum mechanics or relativity should be thought of as maps. Mm-hmm. I think that's a slightly different issue. Okay. um thought can be thought of really what is going on. Of course, there are equations and equations aren't really what's going on. They're representing something out there, but the something out there that's happening is actually going on. It's not a map. It's a literal truth according to the the scientific process. Mm -hmm. And what to create the complexity of the mountains or the seas or our own bodies, it's the repeated application of those laws Mm -hmm. over and over and over and over again in space and in time. And uh, that's that physicist mindset is that huge complexity of the world out there We can get at it from simple rules.
1: Yeah, like uh, Einstein's equation equals mc squared is not a map. It's a a fundamental principle of how things operate. Exactly. There's a difference. Yes, I agree. Right.
0: So we – and actually it usually isn't articulated this way in terms of maps and so forth, but we do talk in science, especially physics, a lot about a theory and a model. Mm -hmm. So you've got quantum field theory, for example, and the standard model of particle physics. The standard model of particle physics loosely can be thought of as the map of particles. Mm-hmm. You've got electrons, pro- actually not protons, quarks, mm-hmm. and and the other particles. And they that is the attempt to mirror what's happening in the world. That's sort of the map, you mm-hmm. can say the an analogy to the map. And the theory, the literal workings of the system or that's representing the literal workings of the system is the quantum field theory. So, yeah, we we kind of do try to tease apart in our scientific discourse the map from the theory and understand mm-hmm. the mechanisms that are being created. But to, to pick up this issue of mapping, you wanted me to show a slide, so a slide I will show. Let me go to a slide that I think will help, and that's this slide. And this is discussed a lot with concept uh, in, in, apropos of neural networks, but... Let me, let me walk you through it. I don't know. Can you see my pointer on this? Yes. Yes. It shows Great. Right. So this is what is presented. So the three boxes here representing, and as I discussed in the text, a temperature trend. Mm-hmm. So imagine you just look at the, the thermometer and at every time, um, you know, randomly through the day, you plot the temperature and you imagine it's at midnight or maybe two in the morning. It's the coldest. And then it, uh, or actually just before sun, sunrise would be coldness, right? So mm-hmm. the temperature goes down at night roughly and then rises maybe two o'clock in the afternoon it reaches its peak. And then it cycles through the next day. So this is like a diurnal temperature chart. This is what the data are. Now, what does the network, indeed, what does our own brain do? So our brain is a neural network, but usually when I use the word neural network, I'll be referring to an artificial neural network. Mm-hmm. So if you give this data, on the left frame to the neural network, what it is apt to do is something like this middle frame, what I'm calling overfitted. And it threads a curve through each and every one of those data points. And that's, in a sense, okay. If you wanted to know, uh, kind of have a compendium of the measurements you made during the day, maybe that's actually you want that. But if you want to know what's actually going on, namely that, the sun is heating the ground or, or heating the earth, and you kind of create this roughly sinusoidal temperature variation over the day. Something like you see on the right frame, that's kind of what our eye sees from the far left frame. You see something from the right frame. So, you want the neur- artificial neural network to do something like our brain does pull out a simple pattern mm-hmm. from complex data. And that's tricky. Neural networks, by and large, actually do better than they should. Mm-hmm. They sometimes do get too literal, and there's a problem, by the way, with being too literal, that if you go to here, for example, notice that the line goes through these points here, but in between them, it shoots down. That's basically – it's making an erroneous prediction for that time, and that's coming from this over-fastidious attempt to fit the data. Mm-hmm. You want it to do something like this far-right. Curve, and you're going to get some error, but you've understood – what's happening the temperature is varying roughly sinusoidally based on the sun angle on on the ground Mm -hmm. um and you're going to tolerate some additional scatter around that and then maybe a higher order theory or an additional elaboration on that uh, what a weatherman would do or what uh, a meteorologist would do would be say well it's due to the sun's under a cloud behind a cloud here Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or the wind is blowing off the lake here or whatever they and they try to pick out what's going on, but this is going back to what we we're saying before about mapping and that the map is, and the reduction of complexity occurs in mapping is good. It means we've understood. And based on this understanding of a, if you didn't know anything about the, the, the climate, you might from a sinusoidal, roughly sinusoidal, it's not exactly sinusoidal, variation of temperature, be able to make inferences about how the climate works. And that's part of what we're trying to do with neural networks is get them to that stage. Now what's peculiar is that although they do sometimes fall into the, the habit of over the overfitting
1: mm-hmm.
0: more often than expected, they do get the the right curve. They do extract out the, the answer. Oh, let me just show that one thing to make one other point here. Mm-hmm. Um, And that was, I I said, well, we need to tolerate error. So suppose, you you, you know, I I show you this last graph and you said, well, look at how awful you are. You, in fact, you, you, except for this one point here, you are over here, maybe you never got it right. You've got (laughs) two out of 50, right? Mm -hmm. You failed the test. Mm -hmm. But the thing is here, error is a sign of success. It is shown that you've tolerated these errors, you've actually shown a deeper understanding of how the world really works. Mm -hmm. And I think this is something we we need to really take away in our own personal educations, that we should need to tolerate error. Error drives learning. If you don't error, you will not learn. If you get always 100 on your test, you're not learning. Or maybe more charitably, you're not challenging yourself enough. There's actually an interesting study I don't know whether it generalizes to people, but certainly of networks, the 85% success is is optimal. The system should be 85% right. And if it's any more or less, then it's not learning at an optimal rate. So we all should be getting B pluses essential or Bs on our tests. And if we are getting A's, we should take a harder test. And if we're getting C's, we'd take an easier test.
1: You're going to make a lot of high school students very happy. They're going to go back to their parents with that one and say, hey, see, I'm doing perfectly according to George Musser.
0: <laughs> and it's actually, it's, it's interesting when you, when I, and I've spent a lot of time talking to scientists, it's one of the joys of, of my job. How many of them actually really struggled in school? Mm-hmm. So there's something else you can tell your parents. Um, Einstein actually did quite well in algebra. That's kind of a, a myth of that. But I've some of the leaders of quantum physics really struggled with the topic. Uh, a leader of quantum field theory that I spent a lot of time interviewing took the class three times. Mm-hmm. So... And in, in a sense, and became an expert in that very field. Mm-hmm. So um, we need to tolerate our own, our own mistakes and that of other people.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it, It's interesting. Again, we were talking about maps because that, that well-fitted thing is like a map. And, you, and, and maybe it's giving us the information, which is if you erase all of the other variables, uh, this is what the sun is doing on a daily basis. It, it, it causes this kind of a curve and then it's, it's, it's adjusted because of the, as you said, the wind, the clouds, all the other, all the other things that, that uh, shifted around, well, rains, it goes down, etc., etc. et cetera. So um, you, you just kind of have to know what it is that you've eliminated all the other variables. You have to know what it is that you're looking for in order to, to see whether that makes sense, you know, so.
0: And it's not obvious. This is why this obvious. is, right. science is a creative process and you have to try a lot of things. They don't work. You kind of have to feel your way through. Often you come up with an idea, and this is historically true, uh, erroneously. And the error leads you to the truth and then you kind of kick away the error that got you there and you just cling on to the truth that you've extracted um, from that. But it's, it's, it's difficult. And the networks have a problem with it too. We make mistakes. It's actually remarkable how few mistakes our visual systems make, considering that they're doing exactly this fitting process mm-hmm. You know, ten times a second, a hundred, you know, whatever times a second, we are always inferring what's going on in the world and from the, the evidence that our eyes and other senses collect.
1: Now, yeah, well, fluid dynamics has still got people, you know, looking for that fit, right, for what what's a, what would be a well fitted thing of what's going on here. Um, yeah, yeah, so and actually, this, yeah. yeah,
0: it's actually funny you bring that up. That was some of my my thesis work was was on fluid ah. uh, mechanics, and I've always been fascinated by it. It was a class I struggled with in college, and I, I, I struggled, the struggle represented that I was so engaged by it. Um, one of the people I talk about in my book actually got his start in robotics and in neuroscience as a plumber, essentially. Mm. He just – he was fascinated. But he struggled in school, mm. ended up as a piping engineer, essentially a plumber. This was in Japan, and just wanted to understand fluid flow. Mm. Specifically banging pipes like you get in your radiators um, when they when they come up, mm-hmm. and it led him to really become a leader in thinking about um robotic versions of our brains.
1: all right, so now all this neural networks are being used uh, in order to try to accomplish artificial intelligence and uh you, why don't you talk a little bit about that? That's, that's a, again, like a, a big push. Everybody knows about it. Everybody thinks, oh, I don't have to write an essay anymore because ChatGPT GPT is going to be able to do it for me, that kind of thing. But, but why don't you, you, you talk a little bit about how these complex neural networks with the modeling even in infinite number of, of neurons is moving towards um, better AI than we had before. Yeah, so
0: what's, what's a good way to approach this? First is... That the current wave of interest in neural networks was driven by engineers, was driven by technologists, and coders, and that's actually what kind of makes neural networks fun. Is you can code them up pretty, pretty quickly. They're very they're, there's there's subtleties, of course, and complexities, but they're essentially quite simple things that, when combined in, in the right way and, and given the right kind of a data set, create huge complexity. So the current wave is really driven by people trying different architectures of neural networks, different data sets. The data sets actually – I keep coming back to that because it's it's been a huge part of what made neuro, the neural network revolution happen is the availability of data from the internet um, in a way that hadn't been really available before. Then you ask yourself, how do the things work? And I think we're, I think we have reached it. We certainly are reaching it. The, the difficulties that engineers have in designing better networks, fixing the flaws or plugging the gaps in their current networks uh, that society has in deciding the, you know, the impacts of these networks come from just uh, the, the puzzle of how they work, how they create something that seems so human-like, how they're intelligent, to, to the extent to, to which they are human-like. I mean, not very in some ways, quite human in other ways and people debate that this is i think where theoretical science physics in particular helps it helps to break open the black box because that's what physicists do in in multiple ways i mentioned the infinity the infinite uh, assumptions that we make that is an infinite number of, of degrees of freedom in a system and that helps us to simplify it but just Imagine all the other successes physics has had. How does it describe the air in the room, Mm -hmm. which is incredibly ridiculously complicated system of just 10 to the 20, I don't know in this room, 10 to the 24, 25 molecules, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, It does, it has a series of methods and approximations that allow it to do that. Even though the individual molecules behave fairly simply, at least in the assumptions that are made here, you can work up to why, pressure varies the way it does, volume and, and and the other so-called thermodynamic variables, the kind of high-level variables. So the other another this is all related, but another thing that physics does is navigate scale. This is something that comes up all the time in understanding particles, because particles agglomerate to form composite particles, which agglomerate to form composite composite particles. So protons are made of quarks and gluons, protons in, in turn form nuclei, atoms, molecules, and, and, and so forth. And we have a method called renormalization. There's a reason it's called. That is not important here. <laughs> um, that is a way to – it's like having a zoom die. You can kind of turn the die and zoom in and out on your system to look at, okay, we'll look at the particles. Now we'll look at the composite particles. Oops, we'll go deeper. We'll look at the fields and we can go in and out. And there's a principled way to to do that. Mm-hmm. And those methods and others can also be applied to neural networks. They can be applied to actually a lot of of, of things. And I discuss some other applications in, in the book, just understanding the concepts of causation, for example, one can apply these um, these methods.
1: All right. So um, we actually have a question about AI that came in from the audience. Uh, What concerns you about AI? Do you agree with some advocates who want a regulatory body or organization to oversee AI technology?
0: Yeah. So I'll put two hats on for this. One is that in the book, I don't really get into this that much. I've been to conferences and these discussions about AI, bias, safety, risk come up. You know, with great regularity and I don't have a professional opinion on it, but I will say that, so I'll I'll speak more as a uh, member of the public on this particular topic. And I would say I'm most concerned by misuse of, of the systems. I'm not, I'm less worried, at least in the near term about wiping out humanity, kind of those kinds of existential risks. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe they're an issue, but they're certainly not an issue at the moment. We have other ways to,
1: lock, to wipe ourselves out. Yeah, of yeah, so we, we're good at that anyway. <laughs> yeah,
0: so, and and dumb machines, you know, non-I machines are unfortunately quite capable of that. But, okay, an issue that should be dealt with, but the immediate concern is really things like misinformation. It's the, more broadly, I would say, I would put it, the uncritical use of the output of these of these networks.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So... And maybe this is where my book actually does help out because to the extent the relevant chapters in the book will help you understand or help the reader understand networks, their limitations, their workings. You can then take that knowledge into your own use of of the networks. And, And in addition to other books and other resources that you might have on this, I think everyone should actually just try playing with the network. Mm. Um, there are tools online that you can do that you can kind of like little applets you can use to see how networks work. You can actually just use chat, GPT, and, and see the kinds of foibles it has and draw your own conclusions about how reliable that is. But my own sense is that it's the uncritical use, especially in mission-critical situations. Mm. So taking the – I mean there's that famous case of the lawyer writing a brief. Right. <laughs> chat i don't know how common that really is i think most lawyers are much more sensible that plus they want the billable hours
1: yeah i was going to say that didn't seem to match uh, my reality uh, as a lawyer at all <laughs> yeah but my mom's my mom's
0: lawyer so i can't be too cynical about lawyers so the um but one should never do that i mean yeah the chat is incredibly powerful but it's only a tool and you just have to you have to learn through experience how best to use that tool
1: yeah. So your your basic approach is that like most scientific advances. It can be abused, be misused, or it can be used well. It depends on the people and what they do with it more than the the technique itself.
0: Yeah, that would be the way. But I think maybe just to drill a little bit down. My my plea to people is just try using the systems mm-hmm. and learn from them. I mean, I've talked to a lot of these scientists, as I said, in the various places, and just through brute. Force experience, they've kind of reached their own conclusions about the, the systems. And that's I mean, they they have the systems have a psychology to them. They they not human psychology, but it's related because it, they're trained on human data and they're modeled roughly on, on, on us. But they're not, you know, there's so this it's it's more subtle. It's it's not something that can be easily summarized, but one has to just try doing it. And then The concerns, and maybe the uh, listener was alluding to those. There are obviously larger concerns that are even larger than misinformation. Um, Manipulating us or people using it to manipulate other people. And then that can scale up. What what about if it's used in a drone? And then the, the pace, the drones are attacking other AI drones. And then there's like an arms race that develops and we lose control. Yeah, those are all... All, all, all issues. But the thing we definitely unequivocally face today is people misusing those systems.
1: Mm-hmm. So in, in a way you're saying that there are patterns a little bit like people who try to see what the patterns are in standardized tests and then get better at them. That, that kind of thing? Yes. Okay. So here we have another, well, another question. Uh, a big broad question for you as a science writer. Some of us have family, friends or coworkers that don't believe or trust science. As someone who writes for scientific publications, how do you suggest we have civil conversations about science and their you know its its role in human society, that that kind of thing? I Any just finished
0: reading a book on this very question. Yeah. Oh good. E. McIntyre. I literally finished it last night. So I recommend the book, How to Talk to a Science Denier. Mm-hmm. And I'm not getting paid by him for that <laughs> book, by the way. Um it's it's each of us has to kind of thread that needle for ourselves. The the, the kind of bottom line of this book is the respectful conversation, the the not condemning someone, trying to really have a genuine dialogue. Often the dialogue will proceed not on the case at hand, not on the actual facts of the climate or whatever, but on shared values, on trying to find some commonality with people. It's a lot of work, by the way, and it may not succeed. You may not for all your effort to find common ground and all the beers and coffees you share with that person and the Thanksgiving dinners um, may (laughs) not bring them around, but it's probably going to work better than you idiot. Kind of those kinds of of insults. Um, There has to be, you know, a, a sense of wanting to, to get at what's going on. I think cynical as I sometimes can be about humans. I think most people 99, rather whatever percent of people, those who certainly don't have vested interests in certain outcomes want to get it right. I don't think anyone wants to be wrong. I think they just kind of have lost the path and you with some gentle encouragement can come pull them back on the path. So in the editor position I had, editorial position I had before going to Scientific American, I was at this very small magazine actually based in San Francisco. I used to live out in the Mission District. I loved it. Um, I would get a lot of of strange letters. Crazy. Let's call them crazy, right? Mm-hmm. And I really try to be sympathetic to them. I mean, they were saying things like, first of all, they insult me personally for adhering to Einstein or whatever. So I tried to look past that. And I think the thing I would take away is those people cared. Mm-hmm. They cared about the world and the way the world works. They may not have been right, according to... The scientific uh, viewpoint, or just a rational way of thinking, but they had the essence there. They cared, and I tried to the extent I could to work with them. Often, here's what one thing, positive thing that did happen with that. Maybe you're, the listener could take this away. When I responded, they were like, "Oh, wait, you listened to me." That's literally I would get that over and over. You responded to me, and I'm sorry I came across in an insulting way, my original communication to you. So often it would develop, once you made that initial swallowing of your pride and just try to engage with them respectfully, often there would be reciprocation.
1: So I I think one thing which you kind of touched on there with their caring is it's useful to remember that they're probably just as frustrated that you're not adjusting to their thinking as as you are to, to theirs. And so... I mean, it's not necessary for everybody to agree um, at all. And what makes good science is for people to be arguing about things, but, but doing it rationally so that people can listen, you know. Uh, but yeah, but, but not everybody's trained to listen to rational argumentation, you know, and, and, and get it because they, they, that's not their background. There's a lot of professions that that's required, but there's a lot of professions it's yeah. not. So
0: great, great, and you have to make your own assessment as to what this is worth to you. I mean, is that an important friend is that an important partner in your life, uh, or is it just you know you, there's really no point in trying to convince them, so maybe just just drop it. Um, I will say that the times i've really worked to try to understand and convince people. I have learned, I've really learned. Mm -hmm. So I did a big project at Scientific American. This would have been the early 2000s on climate. And I did a whole series of blog posts. This is actually around the time we started our blog. And I I had invited people to write in and I tried to listen to them why they didn't accept or why they didn't agree that um, uh, the average temperature of the earth is rising due to human activity anthropogenic climate change. Why did didn't accept that? And in the process of working through their critiques, I don't know how many of them I convinced, by the way, but it certainly helped me because in the process of working through what they said, I learned a lot. I did a lot of reading on what was a fingerprints, climate fingerprints, which is kind of the more granular use of climate data to individuate the different possible causes of, of climate change. If it's Due to solar increase, suppose the sun were getting hotter, and you imagine that that would be the reason that uh, Earth is warming, then you would expect a certain pattern. Both the stratosphere and the troposphere would be getting warmer. You'd be getting warmer uniformly over the oceans, the continents. Mm. And it turns out that you don't see the kind of uniform heating of, of the surface. You you see differences among these different. Uh, areas, both in altitude and uh, laterally across the surface. So you can go through that kind of, yeah. of of fingerprinting process. It was big in the early IPCC reports. And I learned a lot from that engagement that I had. So that's a
1: reason to engage people, I think. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the old scientific and, um, you know, if you go back to ancient Greece, the whole point was to ask a whole bunch of questions and, and, and to get all involved in, in trying to answer them. And usually, if the Questions are, as you say, caring, sincere, and somewhat informed. They often give you at least another angle for yourself on getting a better idea to, to go forward and, and get an even better idea what our shared histories or what our shared spaces really like, because those people are also experiencing it. they just experience it quite differently. You know, or.
0: There was another study that was regarding um, health care. This would have been made around the time of Obamacare. Mm. People obviously, and to this day have huge disagreements on this. But here's, I think the author of the study said, try this. You're having this discussion at Thanksgiving or, you know, maybe your next holiday event and you get in a big healthcare comes up or some argument comes up. Just take a step back and, and ask a more kind of procedural question. How does health insurance work? Mm-hmm. Forget whether it should be national insurance or private insurance or whatever. How does it work? Mm -hmm. And I guarantee you almost nobody knows. (laughs) So you will learn something from that. Mm -hmm. And you'll probably, they'll probably say, "Uh, well, I don't have any idea how it works. I send my bill and it it comes, you know, whatever. So uh, you can kind of pull back sometimes and try to engage on what are really the non-controversial aspects of a problem and which are often extremely difficult parts of of the problem. How does the climate system work? I mean, uh, that's a big question. You'd have to break it down, but... You can sort of get at climate that'd be another avenue with the climate denier is saying, Well, tell me a bit about general circulation models. I mean,
1: whatever. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting too. To go back to the medical insurance for just a second. Um, the, the history. Why did it get started? Well, there were there were wage controls during World War Two, and so so companies wanted to offer something that wasn't part of their salary, but so that's where fringe benefits started from. And, and the doctors liked it right away because it guaranteed that they were going to get paid because before half the people didn't pay the doctor bills. And, you know, from there, we, we went in 75, 80 years to here. You know, it's,
0: yeah. And, and Germany had a very different trajectory coming out of, of German unification. Right. NHS in the UK. Again, you know, there's very particulars for all these uh, systems.
1: Yeah. So we have another one here, which is a big, big question about, about consciousness and neural networks. Will non-organic machines become capable of experiencing subjective conscious experience like pleasure, pain, love, longing, etc., or, or, or is it just an imitation of what we do? Yeah. So, yeah, this is a big, big question. I've written not
0: just in this book but in other pieces about yeah. this and we'll and will continue to write. In fact, I'm working on an article for Scientific American on this issue. So, I think let's take the word will. Will they? Um, or maybe replace the word can for the time being, let me, maybe in other words, dissect the question, yeah. can neural networks, can AI more broadly become conscious? And I think the answer is yes, this yes, they can. So then the question is what type of neural network or what type of AI system construed more broadly would be required to, to do that. So you can, st- Imagine a range of possibilities. If you did a kind of one-for-one one duplicate of the, our brain in what's known as a neuromorphic computer, so one that's not based on the same logic gates that um, a conventional computer would be based on but has a, or is designed really to mimic the, the brain per se, and if you actually kind of built almost like a model or an identical model of the brain in that neuromorphic circuitry, would it be conscious? It probably most people would say yes. Even people who deny machine consciousness in other realms would say if you really tried to duplicate the brain in an artificial system, yes, it would be conscious. But so then you can kind of move off again and ask whether our current hardware, our current neural networks, our GPT-4, maybe mm. GPT-5 or Lambda or one of these other models can become conscious. And that's that's tricky. So that's where one, – that's one of the benefits, I think, of – Theorizing about consciousness. Benefit number one is it's so interesting. It's so puzzling. I want to know how my own brain works. But the practical side, if you can call it that, is you can then apply those theories of consciousness to actual systems in the world and say, is it conscious? Is it conscious? Is this third one conscious? Mm-hmm. So for GPT, I, I think the analysis was done for say, GPT 3.5 or maybe the general architecture of GPTs, these transformer networks so-called. David Chalmers went through this exercise just about a year ago now. I think it was maybe exactly a year ago today or a year ago yesterday and went and applied various theories of consciousness to transformer systems and said, probably not. They're probably not conscious. They lack the features that the various theories say are essential to consciousness. I mean, whatever theory, and you'll mm. disagree on what those theories are and what features, they, but they seem to lack them all. Right. And it, David Chalmers is a very careful philosopher and didn't, he wasn't equivocally said, he, was, he kind of said maybe there's a slight chance or there's a probability that they're conscious. He didn't want to rule it out altogether. Um, but he's, he left open in that same paper, which he didn't deliver. I went to a conference that he went to in, I guess, February, and he kind of updated the paper for that. And he's probably updated it since then, would, would, would ask what would have to be added to a GPT-4, let's say, to make it maybe more probable that it's conscious. So there's things like um, some theories, and I maybe mean, I can show a slide in a second, but some theories ask that there be basically feedback loops. It's mm-hmm. called recurrent processing in the systems. And what that does essentially is it gives the system a, an internal dynamic. That if it were just going from input to output, one way would lack. If it starts to loop around, it starts to develop its own internal dynamics that's kind of what we have in our our own heads and might be qualified as as being conscious. And the systems such as GPT don't have real recurrence. They have something close to it, and actually that's kind of why they've been able to scale up is they had just enough Something like recurrence, mm-hmm. like recurrent networks are more demanding to train, so they kind of backed off from that a little bit, and they made something that was tr- just a one-way system, not looping back, but was almost captured some of the qualities of recurrence, a kind of memory effect that a recurrence would have. So if you added true recurrence to the network, there would be, according to these, that, those theories, to be conscious systems, and you can do that exercise mm-hmm. for, the, for the other systems. And what I'm looking at now uh, for this upcoming article is the global neuronal workspace of global workspace theory is another theory of consciousness. I'll actually get into it in the book. So it's been fun exploring this other new and very interesting and highly plausible theory that puts consciousness in the kind of interaction among the modules in a, in a network. So our own brain has multiple modules, like the motor system, the visual system, auditory, et cetera, memory, and all those modules have to interact and the workspace so-called is the place of that interaction and it's it's limited by design it's meant to be kind of a funnel through things that things have to go through and that funnel concentrates our our thinking on, on a topic and helps us develop understanding so there's a real rationale to put that into a machine system that would help the machine gain understanding in a way that uh, gpt doesn't seem to or at least broadly doesn't seem to have, it actually has narrow areas of understanding, but generally doesn't really understand what it's doing. So adding workspace might achieve that. And if you did that and people are trying to do it, the machine may be conscious. So I think, can we build conscious machines? Yes. Will we? Quite probably, because again, I think there's a, there's a reason, I think there's a reason we're conscious in the evolutionary terms and machines will have that same requirement. And what? And then you have to. Then there's obvious moral questions that come out of that. If you build a conscious machine, can it suffer? Yeah. Can it have pain. Its consciousness and its experience will, of course, be quite different from ours. Maybe the category "pain" won't apply to it. One hopes, by the way, that will be the case. We don't. We shouldn't be building machines, and then essentially torturing them. Mm-hmm. But definitely, if you go down this road, you better start asking that kind of question.
1: Yeah. This well, that detail. Uh, goes right into one of the big ideas that you mentioned, that most physicists think that consciousness, or, or most scientists think that consciousness is an emergent property. That's a kind of uh, concept that's uh, maybe a couple decades old now, but is, is highly popular as a way of explaining where consciousness comes from. So do you want to explain what an emergent property is a little bit to people? Because people, I think a lot of people have heard that, that are interested in, in for example, your book. But the idea is a little bit vague. <laughs> yeah well and it yep it's definitely vague and
0: yeah. i have a whole chapter that tries yeah. to dissect emergence as a concept because it usually is using a hand wavy way so you have property let's take consciousness uh, of a brain my brain let's say any brain any human brain or mammal brain and you know that the individual ingredients probably are not conscious And that's an assumption, by the way, that we can revisit. And a lot of people, the panpsychists, for example, do. But let's assume for now that the atoms, maybe even the neurons or maybe clusters of neurons, they're not conscious. But the high-level system is. Mm -hmm. So something happens. And we call that something that's happening emergence. So some group dynamic is a way to think of emergence. Some collective property of those inanimate or unconscious ingredients produces at the high-level consciousness. Now, emergence, I never made this comparison before, so you're the first to hear it and the first to pop it in my own way. Emergence is kind of like dark matter. Mm-hmm. It's one of these words science in, in puts up and invents as a basically a stand-in for ignorance. So we don't know what's holding the galaxy together, that, and it should, if our observations are right, be flying apart. So we say, ah, there must be dark matter. Mm-hmm. We don't know how base level connects to high level emergence right now i'm being a little unfair there <laughs> are ways to understand dark matter certainly i mean it's definitely more than a standing for ignorance at this point right uh, people do can pick it apart a little bit but that's the original use of the term was basically oh, heck if i know what's holding the galaxy together we'll call it dark matter dark <laughs> matter <laughs> and now we've been able to develop so science works like this we know it has to stair step up we, we Let's we'll move – we call this thing dark matter. Let's we'll see if we can characterize it or maybe weigh. Same thing with emergence. We know that there's uh, group dynamics that occur in nature that things – and not just consciousness, all sorts of things. Um, water, mm-hmm. made of H2O molecules, right, but has collective properties. I can pour it. It has liquid properties. But actually, an individual molecule doesn't have. I can compress it, or I can freeze it. I can boil it. Again, these are all collective properties. The state of a uh, of matter that it's in is a is a collective property, an emergent property. Mm. Pressure, volume, not even not maybe volume. I don't know. Pressure certainly. Temperature, dep- definitely temperature, is an emergent property of multiple um, molecules, multiple degrees of freedom of a system. Right. And consciousness may be that. The question is. How does it emerge? Okay, that's the next thing you need to ask. Okay, if <laughs> someone says, I think consciousness is an emergent property. And you say, oh, well and good, how? Hmm. So in chapter, whatever my chapter was on this six or seven, I actually do talk about some ways emergence can happen. Hmm. And in a, one way or another that boiled down to the, the assembly of, of structures within. So if you take the atoms, the atoms fit together in a certain way that creates a structure and the structure has some meaningful dynamic as a structure, as opposed to just of the components that are in it. And then that can be assembled. So an atom would assemble into an hydrogen and oxygen into an H2O and H2O by virtue of the way charge is distributed in it, for example, has properties by virtue of being H2O as opposed to being just a bunch of hydrogen, just a bunch of oxygen. And then you can bootstrap up in that way. Um, but yes, I, my default assumption is that consciousness is emergent in some way in the brain. And the, and the all the theories that I do in the book are ways to understand that. i I did bracket earlier and I said there's a group of people who don't think that's true. And Mm -hmm. they do think consciousness is wired into the base level of reality. Those panpsychists and there's variants dualists uh, also. And there's arguments you can give for that. The irony though, is that they too, the panpsychists also have a need to explain emergence. There's always, emergence is always going to be there as as an issue. So in their case, consciousness doesn't emerge from unconscious ingredients, but high-level consciousness emerges from low-level conscious ingredients. So there's still a connection problem, kind of a scale navigation problem or collective action problem that needs to be solved there.
1: Well, we've run out of time, but George, is really a great discussion. And uh, we've just dipped into the book a little bit. Uh, there's lots and lots of ideas in it. And I, have this, I have this fantasy that maybe 2,000, 10,000 years from now, there will be a shared reality that we can describe objectively and people will say, how did this shared reality get described accurately? Well, it emerged from all of those discussions. (laughs) The the shared reality description is going to be an emergent property as well. So, so let's hope that this helps towards that. (laughs) I hope so. Well, thank you very much uh, for joining us and uh, good luck with the sale of the book uh, and uh, putting yourselves in the equation, taking consciousness, put it into the physics um, by great science writer George Musser and uh, so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club and it's 121st year of enlightened discussion thanks a lot for joining us George thank you it's been a pleasure
0: you've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts Google Play and Stitcher if you like what you've heard please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you go to commonwealthclub.org donate